reading today is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Good morning. Would you join me in prayer? Merciful God, we thank you for time to be together in worship and time that is uh, very specifically focused on you. And we're coming from so many different places today, and yet we know that when we gather around your word, when we open up the scriptures, that uh, something truly remarkable uh, can and does happen. The teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit pours out, and we want to receive that, we want to receive that, and those of us who follow you, Lord, want to be nourished through that, and those of us that are exploring that or are curious about that, we want to just hear your truth given to us in a way that, that we can really receive. So would you bring that about through these moments, through these words, may the words of my mouth and the things that each of us think about in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A little bit of excitement in Bethany Eastside. A new baby was born on Saturday. Jesse and Emily Birchman welcomed James Russell into the world. So if you know the Birchmans, you can send them a note and congratulate them. It's always fun to have new babies. It's always great to have uh, new people as well. And I see a lot of you are new, so welcome. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. And it's uh, just a privilege and a pleasure to worship with you today. Uh, We have been uh, in a sermon series on the book, actually on the life of Moses. We've been looking at that all summer long. And we're kind of coming to the end here. And what Heather just read for us is a summary statement, one of many, that Moses gives in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is one of the history books, but it's also one of the ways that the story of Moses kind of gets wrapped up. And as he's wrapping up in this particular part of his story, he's nearing the end. Like, he's pretty much done. He's done in terms of his leadership. He's almost done in terms of his life. And so if you think about it for a minute, these are kind of his last bits of, like, wisdom and insight that he wants to give to his people, these people he's been leading through the wilderness. And you know what's funny about it? It has a lot to do with philosophy. I don't know if any of you had to sit through, like, philosophy classes in college. I tended to avoid those because I just wasn't interested in that at the time. Uh, The longer I'm alive, the more I realize that philosophy is in everything. What do we think about ideas, all this kind of stuff? So one of my heroes is this guy named Dallas Willard. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about philosophy the whole time. Like, that would be a recipe for all of us going to sleep. One of my heroes is a guy named Dallas Willard. And he was a a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California for a long time. And he said every culture, every person, every corner of the world, regardless of your background, your religion, whatever, kind of has four questions that we try to get after, that we try to answer in various ways. And we're only going to talk about one of these questions today. But the four questions that he put out go like this. What is reality? What is the good life? Who is a really good person? And how does one become a really good person? So I'll say those again. You don't have to write them down. But just think about how many things in our world kind of revolve around those four ideas. What is reality? What's real? What is the good life? Who is a really good person? And how does one become a really good person? Like, so much time and energy and, and, you know, entire schools of thought are based on that. 
And trying to find answers to those questions can be exhausting. I know some of you are in college, and that's one of those places where you're trying to sort out, like, what am I supposed to be about? What's my life supposed to be? Um, I would imagine that all of us confront one of these questions pretty strongly every day, and that's what is the good life? And that's what we're actually going to spend our time on today, is how does Moses' testimony, the people of Israel, shed some light on how God thinks about the good life? How does God define that? Moses shows us this um, almost in kind of like a last lecture type format, like he's pointing at this in the statement that Heather read for us. And so we're going to see how that kind of trickles out in these different moments in his life as he's sharing a few last words of the people of Israel. And so if you kind of get lost during the time that I'm talking, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get lost if you remember what is the good life. That's the question we're kind of getting after. And here's the thesis. Here's the kind of way that I think Moses answers this. Moses answers it this way. The good life embraces our God-given identity through grateful obedience, remembering our past, and locating our hope in Jesus. I think those things contribute to how Moses talks about the good life. The good life embraces our God-given identity through grateful obedience, remembering our past, and locating our hope in Jesus. So let's talk about identity as we get started. And if you want to open up your Bibles or turn on your app or whatever, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 27, actually, to begin with. So we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. Uh, The search for identity is, like, endless, right? Uh, You want a case and point study of that? Tim Tebow tried out for baseball teams this week. The search for identity, right? Like he's not—he's not going to make it as a football player, so he wants to try something else. And I'm not dragging Tebow through the mud. I'm just saying that's what we all do. And it doesn't end when you're in high school. It doesn't end when you're in middle or when you're in college. It doesn't end even into adulthood. We see this trajectory when we experience change. You change jobs. You change your major. You change your house. Like where do you locate yourself? We change spouses. These are all challenges that we face in trying to figure out our identity. And here's the great news that Jesus gives us over and over again. And I'm so thankful for this in my life. Jesus' identity is given to us. He gives us our identity. We don't have to scratch and claw at it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to try to manifest it for ourselves. So to kind of unite us around that idea, um, identity is a gift. We receive the gift of identity through Jesus Christ. And that comes into the text today. I'll show you how. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 27. And we're going to look at a few passages starting in verse 9. So listen to these words. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all of Israel, saying, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This very day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, obey the Lord your God, observing his commandments and his statutes that I'm commanding you today. One of the key ways that Moses answers this question of what is the good life was just in that verse, in verse 9. You have become the people of the Lord your God. He is handing identity to the people of Israel. He's saying to them, don't forget this about yourself. Don't forget this about who God is. That's your name. That's your identity. That's your calling. Right before this chapter in Deuteronomy 26, God calls the people of Israel my treasured people. Isn't that a great line? Like, my treasured people. Like, I don't just love you guys. Like, I treasure you guys. I celebrate you. They belong to God. And this, if you think about it, is so key for Moses to communicate to the people he's serving. He's about to be done. He's about to die. And what does he remind them of? He reminds them that they're treasured, that they're beloved, that they are the people of God. And as they build their life in the promised land, as they start setting up kind of their new way of life, they're not wandering in the wilderness anymore, don't you think that kind of becomes key, like critical for them? 
We're the beloved of God. That's where we start with our identity. You might be able to relate to uh, having your identity taken away, having some part of who you are removed. Um, There's identity theft, of course. Some of us have been through that. I haven't, by the grace of God. Um, In a limited way, uh, we go through this when, uh, if you're married and you have kids, your kids and your family are away for a little while. I think guys in the room might be able to relate to this. My family, I went on a trip recently and I stayed back. And I remember just feeling like just totally adrift without them being there. But then when I would FaceTime them, when I would see them on my phone, it was like this rush of like, oh yeah, that's who I am. That's who I am. That's who God's made me to be. And that's a given identity, by the way. I didn't earn being a dad. I didn't earn being a husband. Those things have been given to me. Remembering our identity is a gift. And the identity which God has given to me is in play, and I'm at my best when I'm remembering who I'm supposed to be. The good life, according to Moses, means that we embrace our God-given identity as a gift. It is something that we receive. We don't have to keep trying to earn back or regain our place when we struggle, when we fall. It's a gift. It's grace. You know who understood this lesson really, really well? Moses. Moses started off his life, as far as we can tell, he's adopted, and then he commits an atrocity. He murders a guy. Remember this? Early on in his life, he's marked by a terrible crime, but that wasn't his identity. He didn't keep coming back to that over and over again throughout his journey. The people he led probably knew that he was a murderer, at least some of them did, but they still chose to follow him because the identity that was given to him was a gift. So have you been gifted an identity? Maybe one that you didn't want? Like if you're an oldest child, were you gifted with lots of responsibility and you can't figure out how not to be responsible? Like that's kind of my story. Maybe you were gifted with the title of of the wild child, the one that couldn't be responsible. That's a gift we probably don't want. Are there aspects of your identity and my identity that we just need to say, you know what, the main thing I want to be is I want to be given the gift of identity as beloved. That's what God said to Jesus at Jesus' baptism, right? The heavens parted, the words came down, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you need to hear that this morning, that you are his beloved son, you are his beloved daughter, and in you he is well pleased. You can count on that identity as a gift over and over and over again. So the gift is tied, as we read together in verse 10, to obedience. It said, therefore, be obedient. We love the word obedience. There's like no way to talk about obedience in our culture without it being a negative word. I think it's because it's largely been associated with training dogs how not to urinate in the house. Like, I think that's where it gets a bad rap. But there's so much more to it. In the Hebrew text, the word obey is this word shema. And if you come from a Jewish background, you'll be familiar with that. Because one of the foundations of culture in that identity is through the word Shema. Look at Deuteronomy 6 with me. This is how God instructed his people to pursue life. To answer the question, what is the good life? The people of Israel would have pointed to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel. That word hear is the word Shema. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's a little bit like how all of us were taught to memorize the Pledge of Allegiance in elementary school. The people of Israel would have memorized those words. They would have had them imprinted on their hearts. And the rest of Deuteronomy 6 goes on to describe how they ordered their lives around the Shema, how they wanted to teach it to one another, how they wanted to write it on the walls in their houses, over their doorposts. That was the foundation of their identity. That was how it all came together, was through obedience. So the answer to the question, what is the good life? Love the Lord your God with all that you are. 
If you come from a, a more Reformed background, you might know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man, the chief end of all human beings? This is this ancient document. And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there's this modern equivalent to it, which is so fascinating to me. The passage goes on to tell the people of Israel, this is who you are. Don't forget this. But the, there's a problem with obedience, right? If they're being told that this is something that they should be about, that's one thing. It's another thing to actually live into that. The beauty of living in obedience with God is that it's all-encompassing. There's not a part of my life or your life that we can kind of partition off from where God wants us to be obedient to him. Obedience just in regular life is different. Oftentimes, obedience in our lives is situational. So if you are given a task from like someone that you work with, you want to be obedient to that, but that's just in that moment, in that situation. Or it's positional, like if someone that you work for, your boss, gives you something to do, you're going to go do it because you want to be obedient. Obedience with God is totally different. Obedience with God is a long game. It's a series of good decisions over time, and it shapes our character. In other words, being obedient at work doesn't necessarily mean your character is going to be formed by it, but being obedient to God means that our lives are going to be shaped by that. Moses himself failed absolutely miserably at this. He did not get this right in the slightest. Just last week we were talking about how he struck the rock. Remember, he was supposed to just speak to the rock. God gave him very clear instructions, and then he broke that. So Moses is by no means this great example of obedience for us. But I think it's so helpful that he's an example of how God's grace overcomes our lack of obedience. That even when we don't want to line up with that, God's going to be good to us. This kind of gets to the heart of the gospel. When, if you're a person of faith, when you talk to someone about your faith, most of the time they're assuming you're talking about religion, about keeping rules, keeping regulations, kind of saying the right things, praying the right things, showing up to church so that you can kind of receive something. That's religion in the pejorative sense of the word, obeying a set of rules to get a desired outcome. The gospel is better than that. It's better than anything. The gospel tells us that the opposite is true. If religion says, I obey and therefore I'm accepted, then the gospel says, I'm accepted and I want to obey. Do you get the difference there? It's a world of difference. That's why your thesis statement had the phrase, grateful obedience. We're grateful. We respond to what God has given to us, and we say, you know what? I can't earn this from God. Moses couldn't earn it. I can't earn it either. So what does it mean to obey God? What does it mean to live the good life? It means to do so within the bounds that God has given to us, not earning anything, simply receiving from God, and then obeying out of gratitude for what God has done. Here at East Side, that means we live in deep community together. We want to study the scriptures together. You're, every Sunday, you're going to hear me get up here and teach the scriptures because that's how we do this. We're going to be intentional about being in community, like Bill alluded to with small groups. Those are some of the ways that we're growing together as a church, and I'm super excited to see how God leads us forward in that because it's so key to this kind of reclaiming of obedience through the lens of what God desires. Okay, so now we're going to talk about remembering. This is kind of how far we've gotten, right? Just a summary. The good life, receiving identity from God, responding with grateful obedience. So how do we continue to live into the good life that God has for us is we actually have to choose to remember. Uh, when I started college, uh, I heard a senior in college give a talk about like what to do, right? Like things that I would have done differently. You probably all went through this. Um, and his one encouragement, which was so funny to me thinking about this now, was to take a lot of pictures, Make sure you take more pictures. He told the story that uh, his freshman year, I went to the University of Texas. Yes, we have a big football game later today. Yes, I'm excited. 
got to take down the Irish, man. So this guy was saying that his freshman year, uh, UT beat Nebraska, because we used to be in the same conference, and Nebraska had won the national championship like the year before. So it was a huge deal. Like Everybody's running around the school going crazy. So he said the one photo of him from his freshman year, the only photo he had to like show mom, like here's what I did my freshman year, was like the front page of the Austin newspaper, and it was him and a bunch of students on top of a bus, like going crazy after they won the national, or after they beat Nebraska. Like, wow, this is awesome. That was his one photo. So taking pictures actually is a vital way that we remember. That's always stuck with me because it's a way to remember what God has done. It's a way to remember God's faithfulness throughout our lives. There were these things that people used to make back in the day called photo albums. Have you heard of these things? Now it's called Shutterfly. <laughs> but those things are super valuable. Those things are super critical for us in remembering what God has done, looking backwards. And the scriptures actually point towards something similar, not toward photo albums, but towards something like that. Look at Deuteronomy 29 with me. I'll start in verse 2. Deuteronomy 29, 2. Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Here's what's happening. Moses, with very broad brushstrokes, says, Hey, remember all that God did for us, all the ways that God provided and cared for us in the wilderness? You guys have forgotten that. That's what he's saying to the people of Israel. He's saying it's way too easy to forget. It's way too easy to forget how faithful God has been, how much he's provided, how much joy he's brought into the people of Israel. So think about all that they've covered so far. They've covered uh, leaving Egypt, right? Like getting out of slavery. They've covered going through the Red Sea, finishing their time with Pharaoh, the pillar of cloud and fire. All this stuff is kind of in those statements that Moses just said. And in so doing, he's trying to help the people jumpstart their memories of how much God loves them, how they are his treasured possession. And remembering is one of the things that we have to do to be able to do that. And the photo album comes next. Look at the very next verses there, 29, 5 through 9. Think of these as just snapshots of what God has done in the life of Israel. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. The clothes on your back have not worn out, and the sandals on your feet have not worn out. You have not eaten bread, you have not drunk wine or strong drink, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God. When you came to this place, King Sihon of Heshbon, King Og of Bashan came out against us for battle, but we defeated them. We took their land, gave it as inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, diligently observe, obey the words of this covenant in order that you may succeed in everything you do. Bunch of different snapshots of the life of Israel. Some battles that they got through, but the physical evidence of God's faithfulness is what I want to hit on for just a moment. Their clothes didn't wear out, and neither did their shoes. A friend of mine was hiking the Pacific Coast Trail a couple of weeks ago, and he met this 80-year-old guy who hikes the PCT every year, every year, from Mexico to Canada, right? So he just goes up the western part of the United States. And so he's talking with this guy, and he says to him, like, how many pairs of shoes have you been through, right? And how long does this take you usually? He said it takes him months to get from Mexico to Canada hiking, like several months. He spends the whole summer doing it. And he was on his fifth pair of hiking boots. Five pairs of shoes in, and he's not even done yet, and he's 80. The Israelites did not get five pairs of hiking boots. Their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. You can kind of picture them literally looking around, at, as Moses is saying this, and going like, oh yeah, I, I'm good. Like, 
My clothes are fine. My shoes are fine. Physical evidence of God's provision. Can you think of something like that in your life right now? Like maybe there's a book that you read and it's got, you know, some like funny scuff marks on it. And you're like, oh yeah, that was when I was at camp and God did this for me. Uh, maybe there's some moments, some places for you that are just so filled with memory that you can't help but look back on them and remember the faithfulness of God. Are we good at remembering God's goodness to us? In a word, do you keep photo albums, right? Shutterfly did not pay me to say that. You could try journaling. If you're not a journaler, it's really easy to do. You buy a journal and start writing in it. I told you guys two weeks ago that uh, I was moving around something at my office and uh, some pages fell out of this pile of paper and it was old journal entries from when I was in seminary and I was going through a really rough time. And just reading through those was life-giving because it reminded me of the faithfulness of God at a particular time in my life. Another option, this is just kind of very practical stuff about remembering. This is one of the beauties of being in fellowship in a small group. The people in your small group can look you in the eye and say, hey, I remember when we went through that. Or I remember when you were going through this trial and God was so good to you. And they can kind of speak those words of life over you. That's powerful. In its best form, small groups are the ways we can kind of hold up a mirror to one another and say like, hey, do you see this? This is going on here. Like, this is good. God's being faithful to you. Or this is a challenge. Let's see if we can walk through this season with you. If you want to know more about that, come on September 18th. We're going to have an awesome opportunity for everybody to get involved in a group. I hope that if you're not in a group, you really will sign up for that. And it is part of how remembering brings life to us. So we've talked about remembrance. We've talked about identity. I'll just say our thesis one more time. The good life embraces our God-given identity through grateful obedience, remembering our past, and finally, locating our hope in Jesus. Jesus is actually in... uh, Deuteronomy, in a different kind of way. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, and we'll see where our hope really comes from. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. When I read that text, I get this sense of companionship. I get the sense that there's somebody with that person that's on that journey that is looking for that hope. And this this is where this is so freeing for us, right? It's not our moral perfection, It's not what we do. It's what the one who goes before us has done on our behalf. Our hope is not being perfect, never wavering from our identity, never struggling. If you're looking for a church of people that never struggle, it's not here. When we follow Jesus, our hope is in him. And he is the companion of our way. You hear this in verse 11, the commandment uh, that God says is not too far away. It's brought close through someone, through the Savior. Obedience and living faithfully aren't impossible in one sense of the word because Jesus has done that, because he's brought that for us. In verse 12, the companion of our way goes on our behalf to heaven to secure glory and share it with us. That's what Jesus promised in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. One day I'll show you the way there. I'll take you there. That's what he's talking about. Same thing in verse 13. He goes beyond the sea to make sure we have our hope in the right place. And in verse 14, the word, the living word, Jesus is with us, is near to us, it's not far, we can reach out and touch it. And I'm so thankful for that. 
I'm so thankful for the companion of our way. Some of us kind of have this idea that when we choose to follow Christ, when we choose to kind of take a, take a journey on this journey of faith, we got to have it all figured out, right? And so what I'm holding up here is a, a road atlas. This is another ancient form of navigation. This actually still lives in my car. And uh, over the years, I've pulled it out when my family and I have gone on road trips. Actually, when I moved from Texas to Seattle in 2005, this was the road atlas I had. And I have highlighted like different places we've driven and different places we've stopped. So it's a memory for me. It keeps the memories of where I've been, where God's been faithful to me and to my family. But here's the limitation of the road atlas, and this is how we'll finish. Even though the road atlas is a reminder, right? It's a reminder of the hope of finishing a journey and getting to where we're supposed to be. I don't have a relationship with my road atlas. I can't converse with it. It's not going to challenge me. It's not going to be the companion of my way. It's going to live in the trunk of my car, and I'm going to pull it out when I need it. I hope we are cautious about treating Jesus Christ like a road atlas. I hope we are cautious about treating him in such a way that we pull him out when we're in crisis, we look back at some memories, we think we're good, and we forget that the conversation is ongoing, that the chance to be transformed is always in front of us. So, to be fair, it's okay at times to look at the road atlas and say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. But if that's all we're looking at him for, if we're not looking at him to be our companion, especially if we're not looking to him to challenge us and to try to shape us and to try to help us see where we're going wrong, I'm not sure we have the right lenses on. So what is the good life? The good life is embracing our God-given identity through grateful obedience, remembering our past, locating our hope in Jesus. And I left one part out. We do this in community. We do this with the people around us. And we'll talk more about that next week. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for the companion of Jesus. That he is never far. There may be those of us here today who have come and we're, we'd love to believe that Jesus is not far. That our hope is right around the corner. But we've been discouraged, we've been beat down. Or we've felt like we just can't get anything right. And so before we come to the table, before we break bread and drink this juice, we want to pause for just a minute and confess. We want to open up our hearts to the one who hosts this table, Jesus Christ, and offer to him the stuff that's in us, in our memories, in the corners of our hearts that we would rather be dark, actually. Jesus, would you take these few silent moments and shine your light, help us bring to light our broken places, the things that we have said or not said, done or left undone, that we're not happy about or that we know have hurt others. And as we confess, we ask for your forgiveness. Would you hear us as we confess silently?